Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Okay, if Jesus is worthy, say amen. 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 We are going to be in... Psalm 126 this morning. We are closing out our trilogy in some selected Psalms of Ascent. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 126. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you, or we'll have it on the screens as we go through the scriptures. This is a Psalm for one of those times when you're wanting God to do great things. In the little trilogy that we've come to in scripture and that that God has graciously allowed me to craft, we, we've seen a theme emerge that, that really hits on the cycles of life. We first looked at Psalm 120. It's a good psalm for when we're in places that we don't want to be. And then we went to Psalm 124, looking at a, a psalm that's really good when we're wrestling with what ifs. And now we find ourselves looking at a psalm when we're wanting God to do great things. And it's a psalm of two halves. It starts with the psalmist in like delirious happiness, praising God for the miraculous, doing the miraculous and the unthinkable in the lives of his people. And then after the first three verses, it transforms from petition into prayer, where the prayer is like, God, the great things that you've done before, do it again. What you've done before on behalf of your people, do it again here, now, in me, and in us. And so because it's a song of two halves, I want to approach it that way today. We are going to just read and study the first three verses, and then we will hinge on a particular word and get into the final three verses. Does that sound good? Thank you, Devin Watson. All right. <laughs> Let us read God's word beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Once again, we are given a psalm of remembrance, reminiscence. Looking back upon the great things that God has done has stirred the gratitude and the praise of this psalmist, and it's centered around that phrase, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Now, if we read that on its own, we could try to apply that to any portion of biblical history, but that language is very distinct, and it's found, through all, found throughout a distinct period of Israel's history. There's a fixed period of time during Jeremiah, the, the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet. Particularly, we read about this in Jeremiah chapters 29 through 34. This is a period when Israel was in the middle of captivity in Babylon, uh, captivity or exile in Babylon. The Babylonians invaded in waves, and they would take Israelites with them and hold them captive in Babylon. 
And God said to the Israelites through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, you will seek me in your exile, in your captivity, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and the places that I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the places that I have sent you into exile. And what we find in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, and Jeremiah 33 is a repetition of this exact language, this exact promise of God. In fact, just to make it unambiguous, Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of God in in chapter 33, God declares, not only will I restore the fortunes of Judah, I will also restore the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. So God's promise for them is for their society, but also for each one of them spiritually. And here's the thing, church. By the time we encounter those same words again, in Psalm 126 of God restoring the fortunes of his people, it had been 50 years since Jeremiah first penned those words. 50 years since the Israelites had last heard this promise that God was going to do great things for them. And those years in between were filled with a lot of waiting, were filled with a lot of weeping, they were filled with a lot of working. 50 years is a time frame that many of us can't relate to because we aren't even 50, we aren't even half that age, some of us in here. So we don't have a a grasp of how long that is to be in that in-between time and wait on God and want God to work and you're weeping saying, God, do you hear us? You told us before, but why are you not working now? But in Psalm 126, finally, Like water from a leaky faucet, former captives and exiles begin to trickle back into Jerusalem. And the psalmist allows himself a moment to revel in the fact that God is finally doing the great things that he promised. God is restoring the fortunes of his people. And so great is this that he doesn't just want to worship for himself. He wants to bring other people into that worship and praise of God with him. And he he even puts it like this. He says, When this happened, we were like those who dream, and our mouth was filled with laughter. Now, this doesn't translate perfectly in English, but in Hebrew, this is an idiomatic expression. So literally, our mouth was filled with laughter would read, we traded our lament for laughter. It's similar to what we we see Isaiah writing in Isaiah chapter 61 when he's writing of the promised ministry of the coming Messiah a prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, where it says in verse three, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. This is the exact same idiomatic tool being used by the psalmist, by Isaiah the prophet. He says, we traded our lament, our mourning, our despair for God's beauty and God's joy and and a garment of praise. See, what we see here, church, is as God does great things in our lives, a transformative transaction takes place. We we choose to trade the, the, the filth that we have for the goodness that God has. And this is the truth and the reality of the gospel that we read in Romans chapter 1. 
that there's, there's a trade that takes place between the fullness of our sin, the, righteous, the, the, the unrighteousness that we have inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, the unrighteousness that we choose to also walk in. In Jesus, God offers us his perfect righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. This idiomatic trade, this idiomatic transaction is woven all throughout the scriptures and we get to see it this morning when he says, we traded our lament for laughter because we saw God do great things. And wherever the spirit of God is at work, wherever Jesus is being exalted, there is a transformative transaction that is taking place. So evident was God's great work toward them. That in verse three, we read that even the nations around them start to give praise to God. The Lord has done great things for them. He even affirms this and he goes, you know what, you're right. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad because of it. You know God is doing something unique and powerful and good when even an unbelieving world utters his praises and we can go, yeah, what they said. That's all true. God is doing great and marvelous things for us. Now, here's what's cool. The nations around them, although different, there's a similar uh, linguistic style that is used. So that word great is highly important to our text because in the Hebrew and in the, the, the languages of the surrounding nations at the time, that word great meant to twist together. Not like the dance, you're doing the twist together, like twisting something together. So what the psalmist is saying, what the nations around are affirming is that God has taken all that has come their way, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and he's twisted it all together to make something great. That's what their God did for them. And he goes, yes, that is what our God did for us. To put it in the language of the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he says, for those who love God, God works all things together for good. God twists it all together. God works in all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And the psalmist says in verse 3, and for that, we are glad. Choosing to remember the great things God has done, it does something inside of us. That choice cultivates joy. If we want to define joy, I'm going to define it this morning as visible gladness. That's what joy is. Not only is joy the gift of God that restores the wounds that have been inflicted upon our soul, joy is a willful act of resistance against circumstance. Oftentimes we let our circumstance dictate our joy or our happiness. But happiness is dependent on happenstance. Joy is victorious even over circumstance because it chooses to see the greatness of God and the great things that God has already done. And so joy is this choice to say, I will be resistant. I will rebel against what circumstances are trying to dictate in my life. Romans 14 verse 7 says that joy is a defining quality of the kingdom of God. It's a defining quality of life in the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and with us as we submit to him. And so we can be glad, we are glad, because God twists all things together 
for our good and his glory. This is what crosses the mind of the psalmist as he sees every new wave or every new individual exile, former captive, trickle into Jerusalem. Where they're met by friends and family long forgotten. Where they're seen as weary travelers on the road and he goes, let us join around them and let our gladness rub off on them. Let's let our gladness and our joy be the ministry that they need in the moment. Let's provide for all that they have and all that they need. That's verses one through three. But inside of that are two really key, I'm gonna say theological in the sense of theos being God, really key God thoughts or God truths that the psalmist affirms and asserts. A pair of truths for us to gratefully acknowledge this morning. I don't have them on the screen because I just want them to sit with us feel free to take the note. The first thing we see is that of these great things, it's God who does them. There's no ambiguity between the surrounding nations or even the Israelites themselves that the Lord is the one who has done great things. And here's why I make that point. As a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden, we are prone to be glory hogs. What I mean by that is we have nothing to do with the great things that God does for us. But we are all too happy to take credit for the great things that happen to us, are we not? Like if God says, I'm going to give you these gifts, I'm going to give you these opportunities, I'm going to give you, I'm going to do an incredible work in and through you, we have the audacity to go, yep, I arrived, I did it. We are like the fool who goes to the Grand Canyon for the first time, surveys it, and goes, wow, I'm amazing. That is the utter foolishness and ludicrousness of what we try to do when God does great things in our lives. We look at it and conclude that we somehow are amazing. It is God who does great things, and so all credit, all fame, all glory belongs to him. But here's why that matters. The second thing that we learn is that the great things he does are for us. For is a really interesting preposition. He doesn't say to us or against us. The twofold implication of that word for is that God does great things for us and not against us. And that the God God does for us but not to us. And here's why that grammatically matters. You do something great to somebody, to is is used when the subject is the person receiving, whereas for is used when the subject is the reason behind the giving of something. So here when he says, God has done great things for us, we are not the subject, God is. What is occupying the, the world, the mindset, the view of the psalmist in proclaiming that God has done great things, he's saying God doing great things is more about him than it ever is about us. It shows us, it shows the world who God is and what he's like. This is the reason for praise. And you can almost imagine him sitting there with quill and parchment, writing this out, being stirred in in vigorous emotional praise to God. 
perhaps looking up and seeing more exiles as they return in and remembering the promises of God that are 50 years in coming. And then something begins to yearn deep inside of his own heart. And in verse 4, there's a transition from praise to petition. In verse 4, we read, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In light of seeing God do great things, a cry is birthed from the depths of the soul. He's simply asking, do it again, God. That plea is bound up in the word restore. In the original language, that word restore used here in verse 4 and in verse 1 is a profound declaration of faith. Like, Lord, you restored us before, so do it again. People of God, the Lord has done great things before. He can do it again. So God, do it again. In the crafting of this psalm, this word serves as the fulcrum, as the hinge point. At this word, every worshiper is bade to come and appeal to God's ministry of the past as the available mercy, mercies and measures in the present. So I started thinking about this. And the Lord wonderfully led me on a trail back in time, starting with the exiles and going all the way back to the beginning of all things for humanity in the garden. These pilgrims ascending the steps are echoing a cry from generation to generation. Do it again, God, was on the lips of the psalmist and of the exiles. Do it again, God, was found in the heart of the prophets who pointed back to the great things that God did in the life of King Solomon. Do it again, God, was found in the heart and on the lips of King Solomon when he looked back at God's faithfulness for his dad, King David. Do it again, God, was on the lips of King David who looked back to the great things that God did for his great-grandparents, Boaz and Ruth. Do it again, God, was on the mouth of Boaz as he looked to the faith of his mom, Rahab, the former harlot of Jericho turned great woman of faith. Do it again, God, was on the, the lips of Rahab who heard the stories of the Israelite ex exodus and believed in the God who set the people free from captivity under Moses. Do it again, God, was on the lips of Moses, who chose to identify as a descended son of Abraham rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of the world as a son of Pharaoh. Do it again, God, found on the lips of Abraham and Sarah, who looked back to God's miraculous power and work for Noah and chose to believe and entrust themselves to that same God, do it again, God, is found on the lips of Noah who looked back to Enoch who walked with God. Do it again, God, is found on the lips of Enoch who looked back to Adam and Eve, a contemporary in his own life, heard their stories of God's redemptive goodness even though they sinned against him. Church, I'm telling you this morning, this utterance of do it again, God, is our heritage. It is the heritage of God's people and it is the cry of our hearts. God, what you have done before, please do it again.
within this plea, this plea for God to do a work are a pair of metaphors that are woven in, metaphors that we've, of the ways we've seen God work in the past and how God continues to work in the present. The metaphors mentioned there are of the Negeb, which is a desert, and of farming. One of these happens overnight, and one of them happens over time. Let's talk about the Negeb first in verse 4. He says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Now, in southern Israel, there is a desert known as the Negeb. It's, it's a dry, parched patch of land that is littered with dry riverbeds. And when downpours occur, flash floods happen. And these riverbeds violently flow, and in their wake, they cause the area to bloom with life. So after the rains and after the flash floods, literally almost overnight, the place is transformed, and dry land is filled with grass and flowers, things that bring life and beauty. Even as the Lord sends floods to, to combat drought, so too the Lord can fill our wasted and weary souls with floods of holy delight. And this is how the psalmist asks God to work in his own life, in a spontaneous way that seemingly happens overnight. Like, God, restore us like, like the, the riverbeds in the Negev. Do it overnight. Now, if we're honest, this is how I want God to work. I think this is how most of us want God to work. We like when he does things this way because it doesn't require anything from us. It's also really quick and easy. We don't have to work for anything. We don't have to wait for anything. And there's really nothing to weep over. There's a difficulty. We go to bed. We wake up the next day. Oh, my gosh. God has transformed the landscape, and there is life and beauty. And the good news is, church, that is indeed how God works sometimes. But it's not the only way he works. The other way he works is found in that metaphor of farming in verses 5 and 6. The imagery is one of farming, and we know that because of the language of sowing and reaping. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to be honest, it's just like a bag full of goodies. None of what I'm about to say is neatly packaged with points, so at any point, just grab your hand down in the bag and make a fist and pull out whatever God gives you, and it's yours. So let's talk about this. Unlike the example of the Negev, where God seemingly works overnight, this example of farming is a reminder to us that sometimes God works over time, but always in due season. Now, I recognize that I'm not speaking to a room filled with farmers. But having known a few, and having come from the agricultural hub of the country, I can tell you that a life of farming involves a lot of working, a lot of waiting, and even some weeping. And in farming, there are no overnight results. It just doesn't happen. And whereas the Negev is this miraculous example of, of work done by God alone, farming is this really wonderful example of God choosing to involve us in the work. See, church, what we see is that not only does God redeem sinful, broken people like us, he also repurposes us and commissions us to partner with him 
in the great things that he's actively doing. Each of us have been designated a role of working with God to accomplish this work. And the beauty of, of being able to farm with God is that while we work with him, not only is he working through us to accomplish his redemptive good in the world, he's also at work in us to produce in us his own good redemptive purposes. That's the commitment that God has made to his people, not just here in Psalm 126, not just in the exilic period of the Israelites, but it's something that Paul even picks up on and he writes to the church in Philippi in Philippians 1.6 when he says, guys, listen, as you work, God is actively working in you. Whenever we join God in his work, he actively is working in us, making us ready to flourish in the future places and pursuits that he is also making ready for us. In a very confusing sentence, here's what I just said. While God is actively working in us to make us ready, he's also actively working in those places that we will be making them ready for us. That is how God works in and through us. That's why he invites us to partner with him. And what's good, church, is that joining God in his good works, it teaches us to trust him when we don't have control. Now, I know I'm not talking to a room full of farmers, but I know I'm talking to a room full of control freaks. That's why you're here. That's why many of us are here. We, we have capabilities. We ourselves believe that we can do anything. We've come to conquer the world. But even in this, God has invited us to work with him so that we will learn to trust and see the limits of our capabilities and the absolute unlimited capability that he has as God. Doing life together is, is fun. It's really fun when it's Devin Watson, who doesn't know that I'm about to do this, so it's fun for me. We talk about the scriptures a lot. And this week, he and I made this choice to... Um, set aside some time together to just delight in God's word and in what God's doing. And so we did. And then we started talking about this passage because we knew that I was going to preach through this. And if you know Devin, sometimes like he just makes connections in God's word or has insight into things and like you want to take out your phone and record him because God is just speaking. And he starts just going off in this, on this chapter on what it looks like to trust God with sowing and reaping. And I'm sitting here listening, but I pull out my laptop and I'm like trying to secretly scribe all of this down. So this is the best I could do, but this is what Devin told me this week. <laughs> he said, Eric, sowing means you fully submerge the seed and submitted it to the Lord. It's more than just planting or scattering. It's when a seed is buried and then manure or nutrients are brought in and then it's watered. That's the process. He said sowing is when you fully give in everything you have and then you entrust it to God to bring sunlight and rain. You entrust it to God to bring growth and fruit or not. And he hung on that or not too. Like he knew it was good because it is. Devin reminded me this week, and we then began to talk about it and just let the Lord minister to us. He reminded me that part of what makes this work hard is that we have no control. 
We have to learn to surrender our lack of control and trust that God will bring the harvest in due season and over time. God will do his part to ensure the harvest. You and I must do our part of trusting God to do his part. Sometimes we make it really hard, church. Our part is to trust that God will do his part. And then we work faithfully. On that note, there's something I want to just remark about sowing seeds. Because if, if you've been in church for any length of time, or you've been around Christians for any length of time, if you're not one, you've probably heard this this phrasing of sowing and reaping and, and its application to the gospel. We, we will get there in just a second. But I've often thought about how bad of a farmer I would be. I know you're like, why do you think about that? Because my wife loves plant life and horticulture. She can like bring beauty and greenery to things. I'm like, we don't need anything in our apartment, just white walls or maybe some art and we're good. And she's like, you're a sociopath. No, we need greenery. We need things that remind us of life, and she works with her hands, and in our old home in California, she had like this wonderful garden, and she loves being out there. I look at that and go, babe, that's, that's evidence of the curse. Like, I don't like that. Like, I think I'm on God's side in this, but you do you. Like, I will be in playing video games. That's totally fine. But I've learned this. It's a practice of futility to bury a seed in the ground, go away, and then come back the next day, dig it up to see if it's grown or not. We don't do that. We don't go bury a seed, go away, then come back, dig it up and go, have you grown? No, put it back and then go, and we repeat this cycle over and over again. Not only will that not grow, it will kill the seed itself. When we work with God, though, that's often what we do. God, I put in the work, I've sowed the seed, and we go back and dig it up and go, God, it's been a day, you've clearly not brought growth. We replant it in a passive-aggressive way, and then we go our, our own way, live our life, and come back not a day later and go, God, what's going on? I've dug it up again, and there's no growth. The invitation is for us to do the work, entrust the results to God, submitting our work and even the outcome to God's sovereign care. In this metaphor, we realize that and we learn that we work alongside God, yes, but it is God who gives the increase. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. They're all about Apollos, some of them. Some of them are all about Paul. That All these camps are forming of like, who's following what guy? And Paul goes, man, enough of this noise. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but it's only about God who gives the growth. So Paul goes, it's not about me. It's not about him. It's not even about you. It's all about God. Fruit or growth and results depends fully and only on God. Now, based on your personality type, you either hate or love that I just said that. Some of you, not saying names, are the type of people who hear that fruit fully depends on God, and you took that as a challenge like you were sitting there in your seat with your evil hands folded up going, only God brings fruit, huh? We'll see about that. And I don't know what that means. You're just ominously upset that God is the one who produces and you have nothing to do with it. But if we will hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us through the Word of God today, a new perspective will form in us 
that if growth and health and results depend fully and only upon God, then your role and my role is to simply work faithfully. We are free, church, to trust God to do his part while we endeavor to be faithful to do ours. That also makes me glad in the same way that we read about in verse 3. That twists up all of my good and bad intentions, all of my good and bad thoughts about God and people and myself, and it makes me joyous that God is going to do great things even with all of that. I want to wind down by bringing our attention to the unique, unique way this imagery does point to Jesus and the promise that we find in verses 5 and 6. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives this imagery, this wording of sowing and reaping while he tells the parable of the sower. And in the story, Jesus likens sowing to preaching the gospel, to sharing the word of God. And this is the language that serves as the gospel connection between the mouth of Jesus in Luke 8 and the mouth of our psalmist and the worshipers in Psalm 126. In fact, there's a phrase in Psalm 126 that's consistent with the call of Jesus to his followers. It's the phrase in verse 6, he who goes out bearing the seed for sowing. He who goes out. Church, that means as we hear the, the word of Jesus to go from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go and sow the seeds of the gospel. Go and make disciples. This is an early reverberation of those words. What we learn here is that the seed of the gospel is not meant to be kept to ourselves or kept in the storehouses of a church, but the doors are open so anyone can come in to inquire about it if they're interested. Instead, we who are called to go out, this means the seeds of the gospel have been entrusted to us to be sown by us. We were made to be mobile. We were made to, to go from this place to our communities with the good news of the gospel. We who have been transformed by the gospel have also been entrusted with its life-changing truth. And because God loves every person who is created in his image, which is all people, that means he has called us and commissioned us to bring that same life-changing truth, to bring this good news of forgiveness and salvation to others in our communities or in the places that God has placed us. And inside of that, in verse 5, there's a promise. And the promise is for those who weep, while they work alongside God in this gospel work. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Tears are a sign of our investment into the work. Tears are the testimony of being fully invested. If you're in a season of working or waiting and you find yourself weeping, the promise from God to you today is to rest assured that in due season, you will reap. The promise at the end of Psalm 126 is that we'll return to that field again, not to sow, not to weep, but to reap the harvest with shouts of joy, to rejoice in what God has done through the seeds that we've planted. Those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. 
Now, I realize saying that in a reformed space, that sounds a lot like I just named it and claimed it, doesn't it? Some of y'all are squirming, and that's okay. I squirmed when I studied this. This is not a scripture that we manipulate to name and claim what we want God to do. This is a scripture affirming what God has told us he's already doing. You see the difference? God is at work, working on the hearts and lives of people, of the seeds that we have sown, of the relationships that we do have. He's working to bring about his good purposes in his time, which means we can rejoice knowing that God is going to bring about the results that he's going to bring about, that God is going to do what we are incapable of doing for his glory and our good So we can go back to the field, not to weep, not to dig up the seeds, but to rejoice with shouts of joy that God is at work bringing a harvest of righteousness, and he used us to do it. So how do we pray moving forward with this? I know I just said a lot of things to you. This is a psalm that is rich, and we could spend months just dissecting this psalm and letting it enrich our souls, but for me... I'm continually drawn back to verse four and that cry that emerges for God to restore, for God to do great things once again. Everything I kept praying about this week was that, like, God, do it again. Add my name to the list of biblical names that I read earlier. Do your great works again in my life. Do it in my community. Do it in my circumstances. I'm convinced, church, that one of the most powerful prayers that we can utter in light of seeing or hearing God work in the lives of others is simply, God, do it again. Do it in me and do it here. So as we head into worship, as we come to the Lord's table together, I'm gonna invite you to make that your prayer today. Whether you're a believer or non-believer, this is a prayer that fits for you. If you don't know God, the great things that God has done in the past that he's saved people like you. One of them is speaking to you now. So in uttering that phrase, do it again, God, you're saying, God, what you've done for that fool with the microphone, what you've done for others, do for me. Let me find life and hope and peace by putting faith in Jesus. And for those of you who do know God, but maybe your circumstances are depleting your joy, maybe it's shift in prayer of not asking God to deliver you from it or even deliver you in it. Maybe your prayer is, God, you've done great things before Do it again. Do it again. This is God's word to us today, church, and it's good. Let's pray. God, that is our cry. We have seen and heard of the great things that you've done. And God, our response is that you would do it again. God, do it here in this place. And these people, do it in me. Do it in this community. Do it in our circumstances. Bring the floods of the Negev to our lives, this church. While we work or while we wait, while some of us weep, God, remind us that you are working to bring about a harvest of righteousness. God, we trust you. So help us to entrust ourselves and our work to you. God, we want to live for your glory, live for your pleasure. So Holy Spirit, do this work in us, we ask. 
according to the power that is at work in us, according to the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the grave. Amen.